Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for your presence among us this morning. Thank you that you are here in the presence of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would anoint each of us with your spirit, especially John, as he preaches your word. May he do so with confidence and boldness and on the authority of your written word. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. Welcome to everyone. Thank you, Errol, for the devotional. Um, sometimes it seems situations like that are so far away, but when they do come closer to home, it does force us to look at them and realistically. To think of Job, um, Job didn't wait until hard times came to build a foundation of trust in God. Um, most of us know that waiting until a thunderstorm comes to fix the roof is not a good idea. I think that's something that we can all take away from that is um, build our foundations now, build our trust now so that when hard times come, and they will, that we have something to fall back on. I have a few questions to start with today. <clears throat> first question, someone who doesn't go to school yet, someone who is not yet in first grade, can you tell me what this is? Someone who's not too shy. I heard it. An egg? Good, it's an egg. You're right. Okay. The second question is for someone who is in, let's say, grades one through four. What are three parts of this egg? The shell is one. What's the second part? The yolk. What's the third one? A little older? There's a scientific name and it's just a very basic. The white. Yeah. <laughs> it's the white of the egg. Um, and there is, there, like I said, there are scientific names for that. Now technically I did just brief study. There's about seven parts to an egg, but the three parts that we just referred to are what's most obvious here. So can one of somebody older, in, I'm going to say students yet, somebody older in school, tell me what the function of those three parts are the shell, the yolk, and the white. Thank you. Pick the easy ones first, right? <laughs> What's the yolk for? That's my understanding. Yeah, and the white is a little harder. Can someone help me with what the, the white of the egg does? Um, I don't have a super clear answer. I'm hoping somebody would have a, little, a more concise answer. Now I scared you all off. I thought it was a cushion. It is. It, it's a cushion. It provides um, another level of protection, a, a um, shock absorption level. Um, it does contain some nutrients as well and a few other things that aid in the development as the chicken or the chick grows. So anyway, back to the younger ones. Are any parts of this egg not very important? Are any parts more important than others? Did you guys ever see an egg where the shell was soft? Did you have chickens? The shell was soft? I think we had a couple of those when I was little. 
um, that egg probably wouldn't hatch a chick because it's not going to develop properly. So all parts of the egg are equally important here. We'll see if we can get the egg to, to stand here this morning. There. It's supposed to be hard-boiled. <laughs> if I trust my wife. So we're not here to study eggs today, although they are kind of interesting. Um, so the egg is not one, but three equally important parts. Now, someone older, what's that illustration often used for? Uh, not one, but one, but three parts. Trinity. The Trinity. And can you list those, Ken? Good. And you're on a roll. Uh, what are their roles? Okay. The Holy Spirit would live inside of us. He's a comforter. Yep. Father, I always look at it as the head of the three, but I guess that's probably the best terminology. No, I would agree with that. Thank you. Um, and do we understand any of them better than others? Are there any? Well, I should say, are there any that are less understood than others out of the, out of those three? The roles they play, how they work in our daily lives. Is there any that we understand more or less than others? Father, we understand. He's the head of all. Uh, Jesus, we understand. Mediator, died for our salvation. Um, the Holy Spirit, probably, if we're honest, would be the, the lesser of, of, the, the, of the three, the lesser that we understand. Um, and so I want to touch a little bit on the Holy Spirit today. Um, it's interesting if we read through Scripture, a lot of times when something happens, we think of Genesis 1 during the creation, um, it says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and so and so. So if one was there, I think most times all three of them were there, and yet we don't hear as much about the Holy Spirit. Um, while each has their different jobs or different attributes like the egg here they are also all one and I'm not going to get super deep into the role of the Holy Spirit partly because to be real honest I don't consider myself an expert on that but we want to look at what the Bible has some to say on that starting with a bit of a historical view and then maybe a little more on his role in our life so if you would turn with me to the book of Acts um, for those of you that have come here regularly which most of you do here I'm kind of slowly moving through the progression here and looking at the book of Acts here, following um, God's people through history. The book of Acts tells us the story of a number of things. Um, first of all is the arrival and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in large numbers of people, which we'll look at today. Then it talks about the birth and the beginning of the church, which continues on into our present time, and the spread of the gospel across the known world at that time, and again, also continues to today. So we'll focus on the first point today, the last two, possibly later. We think of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all give an account of Jesus' life here on earth. And while they give four different accounts, the accounts do agree, but they each come from a slightly different perspective. And you'll find that if something happens and there's four people, um, the four people will all give a little different account of the same happening. Their personalities are different, 
they notice different things. Um, if you ever try and give directions to someone, much easier to give directions to my dad or my brother than someone I don't know because we notice the same things. And so the landmarks mean, next guy didn't even think about the red barn, you know, or something like that. So each of these accounts are given from a different perspective, and yet they all agree, they all work together to give a true picture of Jesus' life here on earth. And we're given a pretty detailed description um, of Jesus' time here, although John does mention at the end of his book that if everything Jesus said and did were to have been recorded, it would take many more books. So it's interesting um, what all happened that we don't know about. We hear a lot of it, but what all else happened? So the four Gospels focus on Jesus' birth, his teaching, his death and resurrection, about 30-some years there, and they record his exact words um, as he spoke them in an effort to give us, a reader who was not there firsthand, as accurate a picture of the person of Jesus as possible. <clears throat> they spoke of prophecies that had been made and fulfilled, um, in an effort to validate him as the promised Messiah. And they did an excellent job of portraying him as the completion of the Old Testament system, fulfillment of the law, and then the ultimate sacrifice. And they recorded in great detail that Jesus accomplished the purpose that he came here to do, that of teaching God's truth and providing a way of salvation that mankind, both past, present, and future, can be justified before God the Father, and John records his last words, something to the fact that it is finished. Those were Jesus' uh, last words on the cross. <clears throat> so the Gospels record, if I may say, the finished work of Christ. Um, he came here to accomplish a purpose, to teach, to, and ultimately to give his life, and that work was finished. And Acts here begins a new era, uh, one that is begun but is not yet finished, if I may say that. Um, the church of Acts here continues even to today, and the primary thing separating us from the characters here in Acts is simply time. Um, Jesus had returned, and the church has started and continues through today. So I'd like to read the first chapter of Acts, the first 11 verses. And if you would, please stand with me while we read those 11 verses. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all the Jews began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen of them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and they cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Thank you. Be seated. So this is kind of a bridge passage, if I may call it that. Um, Luke writes the book of Acts sort of as a continuation of his gospel. And here at the beginning, he reaches back a bit to kind of tie events from the two together. Um, we know the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection were probably more life-changing for his disciples than the three years leading up to that point. Even up to the time of his crucifixion, they still argued, they doubted, and they denied him. But as he met with them after his resurrection, all that he had taught them seemed to come together for them and make more sense. They had seen firsthand his crucifixion resurrection, and they were convinced, even Thomas, who was known as the doubter, that Jesus really was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. And they realized, I believe, also the awesome responsibility of carrying on the work that Jesus had, be done, had begun but was now going to leave, and it was up to them to carry that on. And this way, the book of Acts is, like I said, the unfinished work of Christ. Um, the work that he has given them still continues today and will continue until he returns again, as was promised here. Looking briefly at these first verses here, um, in the first three verses, Luke introduces the book and links links it directly to his first writing, the Gospel of Luke. And he briefly mentions again the way they spent time with Jesus after his resurrection and how Jesus showed himself strong um, by many infallible or irrefutable proofs. Um, there was no question in their mind that this was the same Jesus who had died. Um, he was back again. His resurrection had changed them. The crucifixion had not crashed the plan, but instead was a very crucial step in the process of Jesus' plan. The leader was alive again. His plan for his kingdom was unfolding before them. Then in Luke 4, uh, verses 4 through 8 here, uh, Luke recalls how Jesus had given them specific instructions to wait in Jerusalem for the next phase to begin. And we all know how much fun waiting is when there's not a specific time uh, given. Um, he said, not many days from now. So they you know, had the assurance that it wouldn't be indefinitely. Um, he tells of a coming baptism of the Holy Spirit where they will receive the power that they need for the time ahead. And if we turn back to John chapter 16, <clears throat> Jesus foretold of this time to his disciples, John chapter 16 being his final um, meeting with them before his crucifixion. <clears throat> John chapter 16, verse 5, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I, go, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you do not see me anymore. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father hath, 
has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So the disciples, as we know, did not like to hear of Jesus' talk of leaving them uh, numerous times. Um, they argued with him or did not want to believe that. Um, and obviously they were fearful. Um, their leader, the one they put their, their even their day-to-day -day trust in, was telling them that he was going to be leaving them, and they were not ready for that. But Jesus tells them, verse 7, it's for your own good if I leave, um, because once I do, I will, spend, I will send the Holy Spirit in my place. And I don't know, I'm, I'm doubtful their view, their understanding of the Holy Spirit was very clear at that point, um, so maybe that didn't mean a whole lot to him. But in verses 8 through 11, he promises the Holy Spirit will go ahead of them, working in the hearts of men and women, convicting them of their sin, and preparing their hearts for the gospel, which would then be presented by the apostles and the church then. I mentioned um, earlier sermon, while our job is to plant and to water, only God can bring the increase. And without the Spirit working in people's lives, um, nothing that I say here, Nothing that you can say to anyone is really going to bring a lasting difference unless the Spirit is also at work in that person's life. And sometimes we may feel, as the saying goes, we can talk ourselves blue in the face, but nothing changes. Only through the working of God's Spirit in people's hearts will real change ever happen and that will we'll stay. <clears throat> so verse 13 and 14, then we also have assurance of two things the Spirit will always do. Number one, he will always speak God's truth because everything he says will come directly from God. I think that's a pretty important thing to remember. Um, in our day and age, there's many, if I may call them spirits, um, many voices, uh, many ideas that bombard us from every side today. And it can be confusing, and we should question which ones we listen to. This verse says very clearly that the true, the only Holy Spirit, never speaks on his own authority, but only what he hears from God, which obviously means that he will never contradict the Bible, which is the written version of God's spoken word. So very simply put, uh, any spirit, person, idea that contradicts the Bible is not of God, no, no matter how good it might sound, because we have that promise here that the two will always agree. And so it doesn't really matter what is being said, who's saying it, where it's coming from. If it does contradict God's written word here, um, it is not from the correct spirit. Secondly, he will reflect any and all glory back to God. Maybe that's sometimes why the true spirit is not so obvious in his actions. Um, he is simply a go-between, if we can call it, at times. Um, he passes God's messages along, God's messages is truth to us, and then quietly reflects any praise and glory back to God. Um, he very much is a behind-the-scene worker. He is not out there um, trying to proclaim himself. And again, an indication to watch for, any spirit, any person who attempts to receive glory for himself is not of God. Any glory that the true spirit receives is automatically deflected back to God. So a couple interesting things there um, that I think we are given uh, as tools to, to weigh situations against as we encounter them in our, our interaction with others. 
Um, so other passages, Jesus tells his disciples of the coming of the Holy Spirit, um, but then they were just not ready to understand it yet. And I think he gives it possibly as much for our benefit uh, years later as he did for them, and it's recorded so that we understand it as well. So back in Acts, when they were waiting, uh, I don't think they quite understood what was coming after that waiting, but they were there. And verse 15, back in Acts 1, uh, indicates the group that was waiting included about 120 people at this time. And I, I don't know, it says they were all together. I don't know exactly how that looked, but they were certainly... Um, yeah, I don't know. They were, they were together and they were waiting. I think they were focused. In the meantime here, then in the last part of the chapter 1, they took care of some business. Uh, they replaced Judas, who had killed himself with um, Matthias, and he was put in place for that. And then we move on into uh, chapter 2, and the first 12 verses, I think I'll read that. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, then multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then it goes ahead and gives a list of all the different, well, at least a number of different nations and um, languages represented there. And, we, and then down to verse 11, we hear them speaking in our own tongue, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So setting here, uh, Pentecost came 50 days after the Passover. Jesus was crucified right before the Passover. And then 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended back into heaven. So we can kind of conclude they've been waiting, give or take, around a week or so at this time, 10 days possibly. And we assume that the word they still indicates the entire group of 120. They were still together in at least one sense. Um, it says in the house here. But suddenly there was this sound of a mighty wind. And the passage would indicate there wasn't actually any wind, but just simply the sound. And we know what the wind sounds like. You know, we, we hear it coming through the trees, the leaves, and all of a sudden then we, we feel it. Um, first we hear it, then we feel it. Uh, here it indicates that the sound came, but there, the wind never actually showed up. It was, the air was still. So I don't know how loud this sound was. Um, I've never sat through a hurricane. Um, or a tornado, but I've heard, you know, they sound like freight trains coming. I don't know, was that something like this? But it was obviously a significant sound, and yet there was no movement with that, just simply a presence. And was the sound the spirit itself arriving? Uh, I don't know. doesn't really say. Uh, wind is often used as a picture of the Holy Spirit, something that is heard, that is felt, but it's not actually seen. 
And if we look at that comparison briefly, uh, wind does not happen by itself. Um, the wind doesn't just randomly start blowing one day. It's a result of other factors. So from my understanding, changes in temperature causes difference in air pressure, which causes the wind to rush around and try and equalize things out again. So a bonus fact there, straight from Google. Uh, what causes wind? So the wind is a result of other things that are happening. So we might think of the Spirit in a similar way, um, of the three persons of the Trinity. The Spirit might be looked at as the one who is possibly most like a servant. Um, like the wind, it brings change, it brings result, but also like the wind, it is moving in response to God's authority and direction. So as God works, as God moves, the Spirit carries those, those directions, those, those um, assignments, if you want to call it, carries those out. And here in today's passage, the Spirit appears as small tongues of fire. Uh, I don't know, I'm picturing just a little, a little flame um, above their heads. We know that also in the Old Testament, God appeared through fire. That was one of the ways where he showed himself. Um, we can think of a number of examples. We think of Moses in the burning bush. God appeared in the burning bush, but the bush did not burn. Um, the flame was um, indicated the presence of God. Uh, God appeared on Mount Sinai through fire. We think of the cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night that guided the Israelites. And Elijah, the prophets of Baal, and the fire from heaven that consumed the offering and the altar. Of course, there's others as well. But um, fire was often an indication that God was there. And here I believe the little fires indicated that God was also present here. And interesting enough, no longer just one fire as would have, would have led the Israelites, um, as was most often the Old Testament, while one big fire, but many small fires. Uh, indicating that now God's Spirit inhabited the individuals and no longer just a guide to the entire group, but a guide for us as individuals as well. Immediately they were filled with the Spirit's power and began speaking in other languages. And we're not going to get into speaking in tongues today, so I'm sorry. Um, maybe later, maybe not. But Jerusalem was filled with Jews from all other nations um, during this time of Pentecost. And they came from far and wide to celebrate the feast. And each one heard the gospel being proclaimed in his own language. So I think we can safely say that here at least, um, the tongues, the languages was directly for the benefit of those who otherwise would not have been able to understand. I don't know how many languages were here, but it says they all heard. No one was left out. And so God chose this time when a good bit of the known world was represented, was rep represented to proclaim his good news to everyone and all heard directly in words they could understand. And I also think along with the, the may I say wow factor, um, we read here how the, the multitude was amazed um, it also showed that these diverse languages indicated the gospel was for everyone. Um, it didn't just come in Hebrew or, or whatever their, their given tongue was back then, but it came in all these different languages. It made it very personal to these people to hear the gospel being said in their own language. 
And I think those who um, translate the Bible today would give that same indication that when a, uh, a Bible is translated to some obscure language for some tribe, um, they feel very special in that the gospel is coming to them in their own words. And I think that was very much the case here. And then Peter launches into the first of what would be many sermons, uh, third, what's it say, the third watch, about nine o'clock in the morning, so right on time here for a good sermon, Peter, Peter gets started. And we know he was a very outspoken person, but now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, God uses him to boldly proclaim the message of the gospel in a way that the group here understands. The group, although they were very diverse nationalities, would have all had a Jew, Jewish basis to a, some, some degree. Um, it would indicate that they were all Jews of some kind. Um, so Peter uses the Old Testament prophecies, and I won't go through his whole sermon here, something that they were very familiar with and showed them by the prophecies that Jesus was indeed the promised one, and then not just that, but that they had crucified him because of their unbelief. But there again, that was not the end. Jesus rose again, poured out his spirit to men, and the results of which they were now seeing right in front of their eyes. We know the spirit was already at work here. If we jump to the end of that, uh, chapter 2, verses 37, 42. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, excuse me, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And if we read on, which we will get to possibly in the future, um, there were 3,000 of them that chose to be baptized. Uh, a new church formed that day, which I'm sure it looks good in writing here. That must have, that must have been a challenge. I can't imagine um, a, a new church of 3,000 in a single day. But going back to uh, Acts chapter 1 again, uh, verses 5 through 9, and Jesus' promise of the Spirit's arrival to his disciples, uh, what does that mean for us? Where he talks about the Spirit coming, giving power. If we go to Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of the righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Um, so it says here, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not of his. And if we turn that around, it actually becomes a promise. Um, anyone who is of Christ, who is a Christian, has God's Spirit living in him. So here it says, if God's Spirit does not reside in a person, he is not a Christian. Well, obviously that means that if we are a Christian, God's Spirit is promised to be in us. And God's Spirit does not come and go from a Christian, but like the wind, um, God may at times use his Spirit, the moving of his Spirit, to stir us into action. So his Spirit, I believe, is there, but the wind is not always blowing all the time. 
And that same spirit also fills with the life and power to live above sin, which only brings death. And if we go on down to verses 14 through 17, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Indeed, we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. So as the Spirit fills us, we become adopted as God's children, sons and daughters of his, who share his infinite and eternal inheritance. We also become united through the power of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse uh, 12 through 14. For as the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free. And we've all been made to drink together in one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And then it goes on, um, and yeah, we're familiar with that. So only through the power of the Spirit can a group of people be unified and function together as one. I think that's very interesting. Um, not in our own power, not in our own, on our own, um, what we have in common, but through the power of the Spirit. And he says when that happens, uh, our previous diversity or sameness uh, doesn't matter anymore. Through the Spirit's leading, each becomes an important function in the body. And their diversities and their sameness become their strengths. So yes, um, we have sameness, we have two arms, we have ten fingers. They're the same, but without the two feet, um, the body's ability would be very, very limited. So we're not all different, and we're not all same, but as we are both different and same, working through the power of the Spirit, we can function as a body. And I've, I've mentioned before... Um, with all due respect to someone who is handicapped. They may have everything present, but it does not function together with itself very well, if you know what I'm trying to say. And so it's only through the power of the Spirit. We can all be present. We can all have our gifts, our diversities, our sameness. But if we're not functioning together, um, we are severely handicapped as a body. And the Spirit is what gives us the power to do that. Ephesians 2 uh, verse 17 through 20. 17 through 22. Um, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and, and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So it mentions those who were near, those who were far off, both have equal access to God by the changing power of his Holy Spirit. And the whole building, the whole church, the whole body, us here today are intended to become a temple for the dwelling of God. Let's stand for prayer and then remain standing for the final song. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your spirit to lead, to guide, to direct us, to convict us, to comfort us in our time of need, and to draw us together as your body. Help us to rely on your power as is given through the spirit, the direction that comes as well, and not on our own strength and understanding. Guide and direct us in the coming week. Grant us safety until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the song is uh,